Welcome to this episode of Curating Crypto, where we focus on covering the art and culture scene surrounding the crypto space. And now, here's your host, Pavo Villalobos. Hello, everyone. This is Pavo, your host of Curating Crypto. Before we get started, I wanted to take a second to give a shout out to our partners at FOMO Hunt. Discover events, data, news jobs, and more by visiting FOMOHunt.com. Today's guest is an award-winning mixed-media artist based out of Northern California, combining visual art with the latest advancements in technology, such as stereoscopic 3D art, to create one-of-a-kind, forward-looking pieces. His work has been featured at national juried art exhibitions, cryptocurrency events, including Ethereum hackathons, Bitcoin Conference 2019, Rare Art Festival, and Ethereal Summit charity auctions. His blockchain-themed artwork, including the Decentralized Portrait series, gives a personalized visual representation of the disruptive industry. Without further ado, let's welcome Coley to the show. Hey, Coley. Welcome to the show. Hi, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Why don't we start with who you are, who's Coley, what is your background, what is your experience as a commercial art director? Can you give us a little bit of insight? Sure. So I'll kind of start from the beginning. My name of Coley, I get that asked quite a bit. It's a shortened... Um, of my last name, which is Colditz. And uh, kind of a quick, funny story of that. It was back in Little League, probably 25 years ago. I got that nickname. And ever since then, that's pretty much what the whole world knows me as. I've been uh, doing uh, graphic design, fine art, and art directing for about 20 years now. I got a Bachelor of Fine Arts from Cal Poly Pomona down in Southern California. It was a uh, really good school. I got some professors that really pushed me hard and really challenged me to experiment. And that really kind of set my, my mind free. I really can't thank them enough for just having me expand and not get held back by, you know, what was someone looking for? What is the expectation? The unknown was actually the, the only success we were looking for. With a training in fine arts and a background in fine arts, how does that change your creative process? How you see something and how you interpret either an idea or an inspiration and then uh, take it to the final product? I would say the best part about my fine art degree was when I was taking my foundational classes, we were very much splattering paint and working on typography with hand lettering inks. And we were very tactile. And it was a learn by doing philosophy at the school. So there was a lot of theory, but at the, at the exact same time, we were practicing those theories with method. And it was kind of able to dual track my creative process a little bit. And a lot of it also came from studying just, you know, centuries of art history and sitting through, you know, three hour lectures at 8 a.m. and just soaking in, you know, these classic works anywhere from, uh, you know, your, your Rembrandts all the way up through your Rauschenbergs and Kandinsky's and figuring out what felt good along the way. That was really important for me. Interesting. And in terms of classical art, who were your inspiration and how does that affect you on the stuff that you create now? Uh, my go-to is usually a distressed type of uh, aesthetic. And instantly, I would say probably the rabbit hole for a lot of people would be Warhol and just, you know, how he used uh, multiples and distressing and photocopying and screen printing and those things that there's not a button for on Photoshop. And you might hit the the photocopy filter and you should hopefully realize it looks like shit. And, you know, because of things like that, I... For one Christmas, I asked for a really cheap uh, photocopy machine and no one understood why. And I literally like dropped it and like really messed it up. And that became my prized possession because I could hit print and whatever came off of that photocopy was so distressed and messed up that I could actually use it. So I look for those through the people that I follow, you know, uh, Warhol. Uh, but even more so, Robert Rauschenberg, he is probably right up there at the top of my list. The guy can uh, collage like no other. He uses uh, pop culture and iconography and just 
his works are masterful to me. I just get lost in them. Very interesting. And you're talking about an era that were the 1950s. I would say probably Warhol was was the the early one. Imagine Warhol right now with Photoshop and the tools that we have. Mm-hmm. That basically you start from nothing and and create something very very deep and interesting. And and to me that was a period where there was a lot of performers. So uh, Warhol was one. You had Keith Haring, right? So New York Expressionism, pop art. You had Jackson Pollock, which was fantastic with abstract expressionism and action painting. He had Jean-Michel Basquiat, right? So this guy was the performer. These were the true experimental artists that kind of shape up what we do now. Yeah, I agree. And and I honestly, as much as the stuff that they're best known for as, obviously it's beautiful, but I always dig for the, the rejects, like the, you know, sometimes like Warhol would do some, you know, he did some film. And he did, he practiced with animation. You know, these things that you don't see in the galleries, but it's really a chance to like really get inside their brain or that whatever you're watching, like, holy shit. Like he didn't like Duchamp did like video and like, holy shit. Like seeing those like eight seconds of video from him, that is like, that's what I aspire to. Like those are, that's where the gold happens in, for me right. at least. Do you see uh, these type of performances happening in crypto art in the future? Installation art is something that is missing in, in crypto. Do you see this happening? Well, I think inherently crypto art is a digital movement, right? Blockchain and everything is based on code. And I would say the easy button is to make digital art about blockchain. You know, it just makes perfect sense. But at the same time, as an artist, and especially one that's trained in physical art, being able to take it off the computer, I think has um, it's a different approach, and I think it actually has the potential to reach more people. I can have a, a gallery show, I can physically hang it up, and the conversations I have will be, you know, it's not in a crypto vacuum. You know, we're not looking for a crypto Twitter, the people who don't even know what what it's all about. And then in terms of a commercial art director, um, what opportunities do you see from that perspective in terms of crypto art? Well, um, being a commercial art director, kind of like living dual lives. And they're, they're awesome because they bring out a totally different skill set. And, you know, being the art director, you're an artist, but for business outcomes right there's a, there's an ROI on your creativity so for me that really allows me to push my uh, my productive thinking i guess to a a more fast paced level where i have to iterate in my brain like literally i'll have 5 minutes and i will iterate a whole campaign you know at least to get the ball rolling whereas you know if i you know hadn't been, really been practicing that there were times, you know, earlier on in my career that would take me two days. You know, it kind of ping pongs back and forth between, uh, you know, commercial art and personal art. So when it comes to the commercial artist and art director in the crypto space, it's a unique challenge. And I think it's still in its very infancy. You know, there isn't a, there's no company for Bitcoin. You know, there's no central place or, organizational structure besides mostly devs. And I see that as a a huge opportunity and actually one that's a little bit lagging. I think that there's some, um, some initiatives, uh, especially square crypto that are seeing that as a major need. And it's not anything that the devs can do. You know, they're busy trying to figure out the problems of the world and, there's no one to sound the trumpet. There's no one to, you know, talk to grandma that's not CNBC. And I think that's a huge, huge gap that will get filled. And I think it's a lot of the people who are in the space now that have already kind of done the, the market research. You know, as a, as a commercial art director, I'm always studying marketing. Right. And in the crypto space, it's 
you know, it's pretty early on. And I, I really think that once that catches up and we get some actual, you know, viral campaigns or it's going to take big things like commercials on the Super Bowl, you know, and I think that actually brings up a way bigger opportunity for people. I think that a lot of these people who've been in the space for a long time understand that we're in a vacuum and being able to chip in almost as a community to get this to a national level. I think it's needed. You can't, you can't, you know, depend on the artists. You can't depend on the developers. It's the investors. It's the, the whole community. I think everyone really has to step up for this to really work. So one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you to the show was because you delve in both the physical and digital art spectrums, and you're able to successfully combine the two, where in most instances, these two areas tend to be seen as mutually exclusive from, from an artist's perspective. Can you talk us through your experience with this and, and how you complement what you create in the physical world and you create variations or interesting complementing pieces in the digital space? Yeah, so my niche that I've been diving down a deep rabbit hole for the past 10 years is stereoscopics. And that is, you know, 3D photography. It's the, the binocular view. And, you know, it's not, you know, the science of it has been around for you know, 100 years. They actually uh, created a 3D picture nearly at the same time as the first picture, I think it was Moybridge. And he was just so smart. He thought, well, what happens if I do two cameras? And I mean, by Jesus, that guy's smart to just think about that from such a beginning point. Right. But, you know, as soon as I found stereoscopics, there really was no other option for me. It, I grew up a kid in the 80s who had the Viewmasters. And that's how I saw the world. You know, I'd never been to London or Egypt or anywhere else besides my little bubble. And that opened up my world. So when I was able to create that as an adult and be able to share my art through it, it was just, you know, it was game on. It was just so much fun. When I, when I first saw your art, I had seen a variation of the minor. I thought it was super interesting because we're in Northern California and that's kind of how everything started here and how to translate it to crypto. I thought it was, it was fantastic. But then when I saw it physically, it was a different color and a different color scheme. And I said, oh, that's very interesting. I've seen this before. And after talking to you, I saw it on super rare, right? So we're, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't be exposed to your art. And then after that, I, I started looking into it, right? So I, and I saw the decentralized, I guess, collection, I would say, where I saw the, the Vitalik, uh, where it has a solidity code and then has th this movement. So for me, it was a very interesting way to get into what you're doing. And then later on meeting you in person and seeing physically and how it really complements each other. Right. So for example, the minor, I, I ended up getting one of the prints from you because the quality of the paper was really cool. Right. So I wanted to touch it. Right. Where the Vitalik one, I would say, I, I really like the digital version of it. So it, it really caters to different people. And within the same buyer, I would say, you have these options to have both the digital and the physical print. And it creates a different experience. Yeah, it's really interesting to make the two. And oftentimes, one will be created. And then once it's created, I'll take a step back. And then I have to evaluate where it lives. You know, for the miner, I initially created it as a, a physical print and much like you're saying i grew up where gold mining started i have a just a passion i'm i'm actually writing a book a, a fictional book about the gold rush oh cool um which has just been in the works forever so when i you know got into blockchain and just took that step back and thought about the words you know as an artist i try to break down what's going on into phrases and words in order to start an art piece. So, you know, I took minor and, you know, you're thinking about the mining farm. You know, if you're, if you're mining Bitcoin, you're 
you're no different than that gold miner in 1849 that is slinging his dirty pan into the river, right? Where they're solving equations with water to get gold. So when I was able to like quantify the two and it clicked, that just started forming the picture. And to me, I wanted it to look like it was from an era that wasn't today. You know, I would, I try to think about, could this be hung up in a gold miner art studio? You know, I, I just, what needs to get there? And part of that was the paper choice. It's, um, it's a fine art paper called Hannah Mule. So you have to be kind of a paper nerd yep. to be into that. But it, it was almost like a watercolor texture paper. And when I had printed that on, you know, your standard luster uh, photo print, it, it wasn't, it wasn't art to me. Like it was missing. It was like a, a B, like maybe a B minus on my scale. Right. And I was like, Oh shit, this is not working. Um, and then I, you know, that's part of the creative process. You know, you can either say that's satisfactory and we're done or, you know, you're your own critic. And I, it was the natural move to go to the you know different papers. So I started experimenting with a bunch of different options and that one felt right. So it became a print. And then I looked at it from a digital standpoint and it kind of actually opened up a whole different can of worms because when you go digital, you know, if you go on something like super rare, you're dealing with one of ones. And I have a hard time with certain pieces having only one, right? Because as much as I understand the collector and, and I get it, like if you own one, the one of one, that is awesome. But from an art standpoint, that's probably almost the most limiting thing I could do. I could kill an art piece if there was one, right? You know, he's some person's going to buy one and it'll either hang on their wall or on their hard drive and it's dead. Imagine a, a modern Mondrian telling him you can only do one of these. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like artistic suicide for, you know, in certain respects. No. Okay. So I, as the creator, I'm always, I'm always taking the step back, you know, right until I hit execute smart contract. You know, I gotta, I gotta think this stuff out because that's a permanent choice. So, you know, with the miner, it was a great example because I thought about how I could create more, but have the piece stay true. And on super rare, I decided to do a couple variant, which I learned about from uh, comic books. And it's a thing that publishers will do where they'll make either uh, like one special one or a very, you know, a variation of the, the full run. And that allowed both to simultaneously exist. You know, you could be a hardcore collector and buy the variant, or you could be somebody else who bought, you know, one of 50 and everyone's happy. So that was really the first one. It sounds like you saw a variant on Super Rare. I did. Like the purple or the yellow. The yellow. Yeah. 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 And then aesthetically, you know, I had to think about, I mean, what does a yellow river connotate? You know, to me, it's just a piss, a piss river, right? <laughs> piss river of fiat. So I was like, oh, that, all right, that kind of works. So that, that made it. So yeah, it's, uh, it's the, it's, so it's kind of funny. It's, it's the wild west of, of art right now, you know, bringing it back to the gold miner. There's no rules. And all I can do is make educated guesses and like strategic play. Agreed. And then just uh, as a remark, talking to, Two fine artists or two classically trained artists. Trevor also uses Hannah Mule on his prints. Mm. He's pretty proud about that. So it's setting up a, a trend maybe for the for the artists listening to this whenever they're putting a print together. Hey, consider good paper. Yeah, maybe we can get some uh, paper uh, vendors to sponsor us. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be perfect. <laughs> so what is your opinion in terms of derivative art versus creating your own original and unique art? Uh, I let my gut speak real fast and that goes from my art or other art. And I'm not judging our art at all. There's no, whatever is good or bad. There is no good or bad, but in my own, my own taste, 
I always seek the um, ultra avant-garde or the, you know, the thing that you're not expecting, the thing that you haven't seen on t-shirts for the past 20 years. You know, there's a, there's a look that you, you know, has been done. And to me, if I ever see myself going down that road, I just start over. Right. You know, and that, it happens. I mean, we're influenced by culture 24 seven. So to me, you, you want to start there because it feels familiar. But I also think that we don't give ourselves enough credit for being creative. And I think allowing ourselves to not go down those paths will actually free us to do the things that we want to do. Going through this experimentation is what allows you to create something that hasn't been seen before. The creative process lends to itself. And if you start to experiment, you may create something that's completely fresh and completely new. And that's a ton of more value visually and in terms of experience for the buyer. Yeah, I agree. And I think a lot of it comes down to living as a creative being. You know, like I, when I'm free, I have free time, I go to art galleries and I don't have to, it doesn't matter where I'm hanging out. I literally try to get lost. I'll check out Native American uh, bowls. I'll check out sculpture. I'll check out you know, illuminated manuscripts, just like crazy shit. Right. And I think the collective knowledge that you allow to subconsciously go in your head, it's, it's actually mining the same thing as like Bitcoin. You know, it's, it's like mining what the next, how do those pieces fit together for you? And, you know, for the like decentralized uh, portrait series, it is exactly that. It is my love for like the, for Dada movement, you know, the, the, the abstract and wild, right. uh, it's pop art, you know, that's, um, I went to, uh, there was a Andy Warhol portrait uh, exhibit that was coming through town. And initially I almost didn't give it enough credit because I'm used to a certain, a certain type of Warhol that I'm into, you know, distressed uh, Jackie O's or, you know, the soup can all fucked up. Like that's, you know, off register is beautiful. But I went to that portrait gallery show and it really struck me like deeply. And as an artist, I kind of put a little bookmark in my brain that that was something that impacted me and, you know, kind of put it away. All these, all these things that you're seeing me make are, some of them are 10 years old. You know, they're just things that I get, I put in the incubator in my head. And as long as I keep tabs on them, they just, they keep growing. And at a certain point, there's a reason to do them. So, you know, the portrait series is, is one of those things that had been percolating for a long time. And I'd never done portraits. You know, I, I really didn't have an interest in figure drawing. And... When I, when I saw the Warhol exhibition, it was graphic art. No, it was screen printing. So as a graphic artist, I can look at it, reverse engineer it. And then that is where you take the, the derivative out of it. You know, I didn't want it to look like any of those portraits. You know, if I did that, that would be, to me, uh, pretty much a failure. <laughs> you know, it's like, good job, you copied a Warhol. You know, right. wow, really, really great. So... Then taking the step back and thinking about the words again, you know, decentralized. And then, holy shit, I broke down that word into two words, decentral and eyes. So it kind of was the name of the series in the word. To me, that was like, okay, this is something. When those things happen, I'd say, okay, next step. What is a decentralized picture? So that got me, that completely freed my brain. Because sadly, as an artist, you can get sued for using picture, right? Like right. Uh, Shepard Ferry. That guy got in a lot of trouble. Um, yeah, some of this was his own fault. But you have to like second guess source material, which I think is just so off. But that aside, I figured out that I could take slices of, of pictures that weren't the picture themselves. It was an ear. That ear had nothing to do 
with the whole picture of the top. Right. Right. But when you take all those pieces and then you put them back together that are his body, it's, it's a true portrait. And I thought that was just a total experiment that I'd never done before. And I said, why not? Let's, let's do it. Very interesting. And, and the fact that it's not only a picture, right? So it's not only Vitalik, but part of putting these pieces together. I mean, you, you talked excellently about the centralized and how it, you split the words and then eventually that's what gave you inspiration. But as you put together these pieces, it's the backstory and the attention to detail, right? So for example, that Vitalik picture, it could have been just a picture, but you, you put some solidity code there, right? So somebody that actually codes for Ethereum sees that and, and, and gives you a nod, right? So the attention to detail and bringing the whole story together is what really gives value to a piece as opposed to just producing something that's visually appealing. Yeah, in a sense, I could have slapped the Ethereum logo on his eye. I guess I did that with, I guess I did that with Andreas, yeah. but that was for a stylistic reason. But, you know, it's, it's taking the code, like you're saying, and giving it context. And I think that's also the education of, like, I, I, I take a little bit of a educator seriousness to my artwork where I want there to be a conversation. You know, I want someone to have a question and I want to be able to start a dialogue, whether it's about art or about technology you know, having a discourse in art is the ultimate form of winning, whether it's good or bad. I've had people that come up to me and are like agitated and angry <laughs> just at different things I've done. And for whatever reason, I am just so pleased to talk to them. And I tell them that and I quickly turn it into a positive experience. I tell them, first of all, I totally respect what you're feeling. You know, you are not happy and that's totally valid. And then I tell them how happy as an artist that makes me because you felt something through art. And as soon as they feel that, you wouldn't believe what happens. I feel like I zap their soul. Like they just like, like, holy crap, you're right. Like, thank you. Like they'll just like say, wow, thanks. And they don't get how I turn that into a positive, right? They're expecting a fight. And I said, thank you. And I, and I led them on their way. And I think that is what we're going for. It's that deeper, deeper uh, gut punch. That's very interesting because as an artist, you want to you motivate these reactions rather where it's either a good one or a bad one. You don't want to be that piece inside the a museum where people just walk from one to the other because the other is more appealing. Uh, but if you're into visual uh, reactions, put a Bitcoin t-shirt and then go to Disney. That was that was one of the worst decisions that I made. Because <laughs> it's, um, first of all, I think after the 38 conversation, I just put a jacket on. People just want to talk to you, but some of them were terrible, right? And then and you kind of step back and say, I mean, what's, what's going on with your day where you kind of feel the need to go in and tell me how uh, big of a mistake that I've made? So it's, uh, I think in both in art and in crypto, that's kind of uh, a line that either you cross or you kind of... Uh, decide to stay a little bit away but it's what you mentioned is very interesting right because as an artist you want to create uh that sensation and and speak to to the person that's on the other side where it's whether it's positive or negative yeah i think it's kind of the commonalities i, I think art needs to be a third party situation where you can feel safe to have that conversation it's there's no sacred ground it's it's a piece of paper with a you know a drawing on it or whatever and I think, you know, people get really, especially these days, everything's very politically charged or, you know, whatever. So there's a million social issues going on that people are just riled up about. And for, for a very good reason, everyone has reasons for what they feel. But I think that being able to get away from that all, especially through art, it, it's, you're able to hopefully at least see the other perspective, which I, we aren't really taught that so much. I don't think in our, uh, in our day-to-day -day life, we're not really told to uh, have critical thinking. I think art allows that more freeingly. Yeah, I think somebody mentioned that creative thinking stopped once you graduate from kindergarten. <laughs> so it's very eye-opening. Yeah, Excellent. and I can say I, 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 have a, I have a child, so I feel like I, I've always felt like a child. I think art has definitely kept me there. But having a child is like a second dose of that world, which is... It's just so pure and beautiful. And, and that's like, you know, not to get into parenting, but that's a, a, a hidden blessing 
is to get that that pure creativeness and see that in someone else. It's really inspiring. I would agree. Um, mine is going to turn nine months in, in 10 days. So I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah. Congratulations. It's, it's a beautiful path. It's just crazy. Right? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. One of the the areas that I kind of wanted to uh, explore, and we, we touched already a bit on it, but it's tokenized art, right? It's, it's something that's hard to grasp for a traditional artist. Uh, but there's platforms such as Super Rare or Rare Art Labs. They're doing um, this for the digital scene. Can you talk a little bit about it? And what's your recommendation to fellow digital artists that have a hard time getting that grasp of, of this market and this opportunity? Yeah, I would say I had to do I had to do a lot of research to even really understand what I was getting into because you know inherently with the smart contract you are executing finality and I think everyone needs to be sure what they're doing before they they do something like that and one what, what the first realization I really came to was that it allowed the art to really, uh, it became two things. It became exclusively collectible as a digital, you know, image, which before any of this happened for me to share, uh, you know, a 3d picture or whatever art I was doing, I had to watermark it or I, I was just paranoid. I just felt like as soon as I put it on the internet, it's, you know, digitally, it was worthless. You know, uh, wow, big deal. You could right click, save, and you have my art. Once I, you know, really figured out the tokenization of it, it now allows me to put that picture. It's now its own marketing piece. It's not, it's a visual representation of the ownership. And that's kind of a loaded phrase. But when you take a step back, I want that picture to be everywhere. I want everybody to right click save. And for them to have their own little slice, if that's owning art to somebody, holy shit, awesome. Like own a free piece of something that I did. But if you, you know, want to make it, you know, something that is exclusive and you want to own the digital artwork, now I can actually do that. And that has really opened up just the creative floodgates. I'm not afraid anymore. Like I am so free with digital art that it, it, it feels wonderful. It's such an early time to be in the space, right? We all live our lives and we, we might have that 20 minutes every night. And, and for those 20 minutes, all million of us are making our own magic, right? It's these things that exist. And I think there's a lot of people who are feeling liberated as they should to be a part of this and have their art seen. And so many of the people I know on Super Rare you know, we all live in different corners of the earth. You know, there's people I know in Scotland. There's people from uh, Croatia, you know, um, Sweden. These like places that I would never, ever, ever get to see their artwork. But now we're all experiencing this together from our own perspective. And I think it's, it's just beautiful. And everyone is so into it. And for the most part, super accepting of each other. You know, no one's shit talking anyone's style. It's very constructive. You know, if, if we, we want each other to succeed, I've never seen anybody show a jealousy card. You know, I think everyone has such a blank slate that and to throw shade at somebody is just like holding yourself back. It's like, seriously, like just move on and, and make art. And we're all doing that. And I want to, I, and literally trying to help out people in other countries, which feels awesome. Like we're all just sharing and creating. It's, it's beautiful, really fun. So that, that leads me to the next question. In terms of technology, right? So we're talking about collaboration, but in terms of how it enhances your experience, and you touched a little bit on it uh, in the beginning, we're seeing a lot of people now not being afraid of augmented reality see a lot of mixed media. You see now uh, virtual reality. How is the inclusion of these technologies shaping up the user experience and how does it differ from the traditional uh, commercial scene? I, I don't think people under, 
really understand it sounds cliche to say that, but how much of a game changer that AR and VR are going to have. And I don't know if you've tried virtual reality before. I had the, I've had the chance a couple times and each time it was equally fascinating and devastating. And I, I'm, I'm glad it still feels that way because I know at some point it's not going to feel um, as devastating as it does right now. Um, and I'll say the devastate is, if that's even a word, um, comes from uh, plugging in and then coming back. And there's, there's this weird, there's this weird uh, physiological and psychological thing that happens after you've been inside for, you know, maybe, maybe five minutes or so. You, mm-hmm. you stop losing, like you don't know where you are in a room, things like that. And then you're, you're experiencing this virtual space that's beautiful and dynamic. Uh, I got to go inside my own virtual art gallery on crypto voxels. Uh, really quickly, crypto voxels is a Ethereum virtual world that you can you know, buy little plots of virtual land and build like Minecraft. Uh, naturally, I built um, an art gallery for my NFTs, my digital art. And when I went inside of that with virtual reality, it was, it was, it was almost like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, you know, where you're, I'm used to being on the browser and like using a keypad, walk around. And that was awesome. But then I got literally transported into my screen and it kind of, kind of fucked with my head for a little bit. And then when I took it off and I was back and that, this was at uh, uh, Bitcoin 2019 conference. Um, it was great to pop into that situation. That was fun, but it was totally jarring. I think that as an artist, we have the ability to drive that narrative and affect that user experience that we're all going to be a, be a part of. And it's a, I see it as a digital dystopia, not to be totally negative, but you know, being able to control that's going to be pretty important. It makes a lot of opportunities. Just imagine in five to 10 years, I don't know when this is going to kick off or if it's going to kick off in the way that we see it. Imagine that virtual gallery and then I go in with my profile and then I know what I like, right? So if I go to your gallery and it shows me the lighting that I, that I, that I tend to prefer and then the background that I tend to prefer, and then maybe this, it changes the setup based on how I typically consume art, right? So the feelings that you get out of this virtual world is very real. The first time I tried one of these devices, I was at the Himalayas virtually, obviously. And I was crossing between one specific part of a rock to the other, and I had to cross with a string. That experience was very real. When I took it off, it was a bit uh, nauseated, I would say. Imagine these strong reactions and these strong feelings whenever you're walking through a virtual gallery where it's really shaped based on your profile. Just imagine the possibilities. Yeah, and I can say personally in my own gallery... So when you're scaling a, a digital picture, you can go as big as you want. And right. physically, you know, there's, there's limitations. You can't make something that's 100 feet tall. But, you know, it's, you could, but, you know, it's just exorbitantly expensive and, and hard to do. But that being said, in my virtual gallery, you know, on my rooftop, I have, you know, 50-foot animated drawings. You know, it's just the scale that, I've, that I can do as an artist. It's its own experimentation. You know, I can see what something looks like huge without hitting print. And I can also use that as, um, you know, market research for, you know, patrons or people who stumble into my gallery, maybe they want it, you know, to be wall size, then holy shit, I should make it larger. Now there's, there's, there's a, that's part of the communication that can happen. I think virtual reality will let us experiment a lot easier. Very interesting. I have a, a little story I could kind of ties together the physical and the moving into augmented reality. So I was zenning out. I was blocking out all the you know thoughts we have of our chaotic life. And for a split second, you know, it all went black and I was like, holy shit. No. I wasn't even saying holy shit, right? I was actually in that moment. And in that moment, this visual popped into my head and I don't ever see anything normally. And this 
this finished image. It was, it was a piece of art was, was filling my frame. And it was, it was just nothing I'd ever thought about. And it was a walkway of a person walking down a walkway in perspective with this, uh, it was like a bridge and there was like this dystopic background and the walkway was in technicolor, like nothing you could ever see with earth's colors. It was just like a, a foreign color scape. And I took a mental snapshot. I was like, holy shit. I put that in the, in the incubator, right? While I was, while I was meditating. And when I came back, I was, I was taken. It was one of those like things that, that hit me. And I said, I, I need to make this piece of art. And I had no idea what, how, or what I was making, but I was going to make it to thank that experience. You know, I think it's a, um, it's a validation of, of the beautiful, of, of beauty. So I made the art piece and it was a color changing sound activated led lights. And those are all words I'd never thought about <laughs> until I needed to make this art piece. So I did it and, and it worked somehow I made this thing on the first try and it fucking worked. And I was like, Holy shit. And then I was done. So I like stamped it and I said, thank you uh, to the universe for that. And now it's uh, the biggest art piece I've made uh, to this point is I think, 48, 48 by 60, I think. So it's, it's a large canvas. Are you talking about Portopia? No, I don't know if you've seen this one. It's, it's on, there's a, there's a variant on Super Rare called uh, Welcome Home. Okay. Um, and on that version, it was an animated GIF. So it's just a, uh, the, the bridge way is color changing mm-hmm. and the people actually walk down it. So that was kind of how I, bridge to gap between physical and digital. That's a different story. Cool. Um, so that this is the world I live in. I live in physical and then appropriated when the, when is the right call for digital? Um, so that all said, now that I have a new tool that I'm learning that's augmented reality, I get to be the kid that's just experimenting with no rules again. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm now, Four, four years old again with the crayon and let's, let's mess up that piece of paper, you know? So that's what I'm doing with augmented reality. And I'm going to start putting that on top of physical pieces I've made that might not even be crypto. You know, like I'm not crypto exclusive. I am right. artist exclusive. You know, it's like, I just make art and it's not, it's never like I'm only doing Bitcoin art right now. It's like, yeah. that's, that's a failure. I, I have, you know, the creative thought, always wins. So now I'm, you know, I'm trying to bring in augmented into things that are maybe I thought they were finished thoughts, but I have more to say. I can then give a, like a chapter two on augmented reality. It's very interesting to kind of complement what you've already produced. And you thought at some point it was finite and then kind of bring it back to life by, uh, overlaying augmented reality on it. That's very interesting. And by the way, I just went into Super Rare. It's the almost there. Uh, I guess it's a variation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see that BK Crypto owns it. That's pretty cool, man. Actually, that is slightly different, but uh, that would be the same series. I think it's it's a yellow background, and there's a guy. Uh, he's not walking in a straight line. That was another message I was trying to teach people was, not teach, we've all done it, but you learn stuff, and then you mess up, and you kind of got to go back a couple steps. And then like do it right the next time before you get to keep moving. And so that was kind of this back and forth of the person that I was trying to distill. Got very cool. Nonetheless, now I'm looking at your pieces as I speak to you. Very cool stuff. And I I can kind of talk to that a little bit. Um, I've run into as an, as a digital artist, as a tokenized artist, looking at my total collection. And there, there brings these, these thoughts in my head, right? I'm taking a step back and it makes me actually become more selective of what I tokenize because I can literally tokenize hard drives worth of things I've made, you know, whatever thought could be a token, but I'm really feeling that it's the totality 
of the tokenized artworks that tells its own story. You know, I have certain things to say. I'm not going to say everything. And I have to um, self-curate as sometimes. And I think that's a very valuable lesson for those that are starting in this space, where you see in these platforms somebody that's just putting in something that, hey, this is pretty cool. I can put a couple of elements, a specific texture, and then a filter, and, and it's done. But there's no cohesiveness, right? So there's no thought process as to what do I want to express with my art. And I guess that's to the process of not only creating something, but creating yourself as an artist, some art for somebody to consume, but also to experience what your thought process and what you're all about. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic because my brain will go in a thousand different directions and there's certain ways to corral that at times. I think there's benefit to having certain styles that you continue to go down and refine and explore. You'll see on my super rare, there's some random ass ideas that <laughs> um, I, I went, I've gone through a phase also where I was, I do these like little design charrettes where I just tell myself that I'll have an idea. I'll cook it up in my brain for a while. And then I'll come to a point where I'll say, okay, tonight you're going to tokenize that. And it's like my own creative fire drill where I have to, I have to do it. And then I, and then I hit tokenize before I go to bed and it just, it's something that I've done. And it's just its own experimentation where you take a step back, you know, a couple of months later and you look at that and you're like, okay, that was about, you know, maybe four hours of thought or maybe not four hours of thought, probably 40 hours of thought. And then uh, four hours of execution, you know, and what does that mean? You know, and what did the, what did a buyer think if they bought it or has it, has no one looked at it? You know, it's, it's so, it's so experimental. And I think there's, there's a lot of play to be done in the space as well. For as serious as, you know, you can take tokenizing you can also have it mean nothing and, and do experiments like that and just see what happens because who cares, right? It's, it's, it's a creative thought. Right. And you mentioned something that's super interesting, the amount of thought that you put into it and then the execution. Um, we've, we've spoken about this before. I used to make music at some point in my life. And sometimes I would, I would spend 20 hours on a specific uh, part of a song. And then in the next three hours, I would make three more songs, right? Mm -hmm. And and some of these pieces were, or the songs that ended up making into one of the indie movies or one of the clients that I used to have were super quick versus others where I truly spend the time putting together and I enjoyed and, and I lost track of time. Uh, may not have, but that was so fulfilling, fulfilling to me. The experimentation gave me such an opportunity for me to create something new where the time that I spent on it didn't matter. And I'm assuming the same thing happens to you. Yeah, there's definitely, I would call it like a, a creative callus that happens. And to me, it's this, it's, it's almost like the 10,000 hours where you have to spend the time doing before you even know, you know, what the hell you're doing. You just have to put in the time and do it. And Part of that at a certain point is looking at your creation as it's being creative and knowing when to hit the stop button. And there's so many times that I know that I could noodle a, a painting for another month or year, or I could say it's done and make a new one. And there's always that magic moment where either you went too far and you painted over the good piece, and then you kind of had to redo it or you stop too early or you stopped at that perfect point. It's like hitting the, you know, hitting the top of a candle on trading or something silly like that. Like you can't ever probably time it perfectly, but in art, it's that same thing where you can kind of feel it personally. Like you're like, Oh man, I'm getting close. And then at a certain point you're like, okay, done. Start, start a new one. And then take whatever you learned from that as a starting point. I think that there's a lot of value in stopping and using quantity to fill out your skills rather than perfection or perceived perfection. We've discussed the crypto art scene and the fact that it's still in its infancy. 
what does it need to happen for the crypto art space to get to the next level? I think that the next level is also perception. I think we're I think we're at we're at a level. I think a lot of people set the groundwork. The early people, uh, you know, crypto graffiti. There's people who took a quantum leap. You know, there was no crypto art, and they they just said now there is right. So then there was, and I think the infrastructure has grown enough to a usable point that there are smart contracts. You know, they're super rare. There's rare art labs. There's known origin. There is, you know, there's a multitude makerspace. There's a, there's a lot of platforms, right? So I think that was a hurdle. And that hurdle has been in the first iteration uh, executed and it can only get better. And I think because of what that has brought, I think that we're in it. And I think it's now a point of exposure and education and grassroots effort that can be corporate. I think it has to be so organic. But I think that once it crosses that threshold and it'll take, you know, there's certain events that happen, you know, whether they're, um, you know, uh, Christie's selling, you know, a GAN picture for Mm $400,000, you know, I mean, that on the Richter scale creates a, creates a a bump, right? Then you've leveled up a little bit. And then the next time it'll be, you know, the Met is going to have a technology expo. And then some, some piece of crypto art is, is the single picture that is picked for the, the totality of technology, right? Some, something, and that'll blip it up again. And then, you know, there's just these seeds that are planting that infect the art collectors. And I think the art collectors are really the ones who are in the dark about this. I actually had a really good conversation with a really well-known art critic. And we've been friends for a while. And I just decided to just kind of cold chat him about uh, tokenized art because I knew that he was pretty traditional in, in his, uh, you know, he, he runs a gallery and he knows, he knows art as a critic and he knows the scene, but I knew that he didn't know this. And I just, it was part of my own grassroots. I just said, Hey, I'm going to tell you about tokenizing art. And he talked shit to me about it politely for probably a half hour. You know, he was definitely listening and he kept saying, why the fuck would I pay money for a JPEG? You know, and it's a very valid first response. But I can tell you by the time that we were done with that talk, he was suggesting that I tokenize some of my physical prints for digital sales. So he was half jokingly, but I I knew that I had gotten through to him and he suggested the tokenizing. I said, holy shit, I fucking won. And I just said, you know, I'm here. If you have questions, you know, this is a whole new thing, but it's, it's something that is actually happening. And as the art world, they need to, they need to have ambassadors. You know, it's, it's just people telling people that's how the world actually moves places. Right. But you mentioned basically you planted the seed and, and I agree. Crypto is very interesting. There's a lot of people that made money in the early years. There's a lot of people that have been in the space for quite some time and they come in and they buy whole collections and we're seeing it. And, and I talked to the artists and of course, I'm not going to disclose names or anything, but it's some of these buyers that are buying complete collections have seven followers on Twitter, have five followers <laughs> on Twitter. Um, and it's just the anonymity that, that crypto brought in and they did a good job with, with their investment. And, and they're basically betting that the crypto art scene is going to pick up. And it's just a second layer. Now, it's not only as a result of their investment, they uh, accumulated wealth. Now they're betting big on this is a very specific uh, period in, in crypto art where they, they will see capital gains on this. It's, it's a very interesting thing. But I, I do also agree with what you've said that there's going to be 
curators of this, right? There's going to be critics. And, and the way that you get there is by speaking about these digital pieces and about this specific niche in the art world. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, being alive right now is just a, a monumental experience. You know, we could have been alive in, you know, 1720 or something. And I'm sure that that's a, a fine life. But I don't think that, you know, the, all the things that are going around us we're actually part of that some type of huge change. Maybe that's a hundred years from now, but things are starting to heat up. And as an artist, we are, we are, our reactions are visual. So we are kind of capturing slices of that action. At least that's what I'm feel like is coming out of me. Those are the responses. And I think in, you know, decades from now, whatever chaos we're living in or whatever bliss that we're making art about, someone else is going to see and feel the same thing about that time in their life. And then that is what makes the value, right? It's not, it's, I think it's the feeling that others get from the art. We're just a reaction of what we're living. I think that's, that's what artists do. And you mentioned something that's very interesting. I think based on what you've said, we're, we're about the same age, I would say. And we, we went through the transition of analog to digital, right? So we, we had the first Nintendos and we had the first Segas and then the Super NES and then we got the Tamagotchis and then computers starting to get better. I mean, it's just the, the way the people that were born in the 80s and are adults now or they're in their earlier mid 30s have gone through a huge transformation, right? We've experienced quite a bit where I agree with you in the sense that it's, it's a very specific period in time that we, we've grown hundred X, right? And, and what's kind of, what's yet to come is going to be very interesting, but experimenting that transition from analog to digital and, and, and all the opportunities it has open is, is just incredible to see. Yeah. I mean, I grew up with the green screens of Apple two C's playing Oregon trail and, you know, shooting a whole shitload of Buffalo. I couldn't bring back to my wagon. <laughs> um, and it's, and it's honestly, it's the eight bit, you know, those are these, those are the things that you could never explain to somebody now. Like distressed pixelated art was right. just what this, what the computer game was. Right. And now we're striving to get back to the pixelated art. You know, there's like this circular thing that as kids of the eighties that I think it's nostalgic in a certain extent, but now it's also bleeding into the future. So it's, it's a, the, the collective consciousness is kind of uh, latching on to different things that we grew up with and finding ways to make it modern and, and tangible. Completely agree. So, Cody, what are you currently working on? Uh, where can people find you or see you next? Um, currently, I'm working on a portrait series. It's called Decentralized, and I was mentioning it earlier. It's a, it's a collection of bases of people who have moved that Richter scale of uh, blockchain and this technological movement. Uh, I've done a, a, a physical print set that's lenticular. That means you don't wear 3D glasses. Okay. Um, so that's my stereoscopics bleeding through to uh, crypto art. Uh, so I have a physical series as well as a digital series. Uh, the digital stuff is pretty much on super rare for the most part. I have, I have one of my Vitalik uh, that uses 3D glasses on Rare Art Labs. So those are the two platforms uh, that most of my crypto art is on. Uh, I've also just been dabbling in just other crypto-related artworks that you mentioned, the gold miner. That's on. There's versions of that on, on both of those as well. And uh, some new things I'm actually working on are, are much more physical. One of them has a motor. So it's, it's a motorized physical art piece. Cool. Um, so I'm, I'm taking my own step back and, and uh, continuing to experiment. So I, get, I get bored with things I've done. Are you planning to attend any conferences, any... Any art expos, anything big where people can say, okay, Coley's going, is this a good time for me to go approach him and, and see his physical art in person? I think I might be heading down to LA. There's a, there's an expo in, in October 
um, BlockCon, I think is what it's called. Okay. Um, so I'm hoping to be down there. I do, uh, I do 3D posters for Ethereum hackathons. And I'm planning to do one for Ethereum Boston. So that's just a giveaway that I do. So if you're if you're at the hackathons, I just do a themed poster with uh, 3D glasses. If you want to snag one, it will be there. Besides that, you can go to my website. It's coldie, C-O-L-D-I-E, 3D.com. And that's got my crypto, my, my commercial art, kind of snapshot of a bunch of different stuff I do. Excellent. And I'll put that on the the notes of the podcast and also I'll make a post on our Twitter page so people can find you easily and then they can get in touch with you. Yeah. And I'm also really active on Instagram and Twitter so you can, you can tag those. But I would say in terms of my creative flow, if you're following me on social media, you'll stay much more up to date about where I'm at. And you're, you're hyper aware. I mean, I post something in, in, on, on sent and then you're commenting and then I post something on Twitter and I see you're posting on Twitter. So it's part of this movement from analog to digital where there's a lot of us where just, we're just connected at all times. It's very interesting. And, and to that extent, I think that brings the, one of the most opportunity in this whole space is having a discourse with collectors after the sale. So once now in the physical world, I'll sell somebody a, a piece of art, then they disappear. I mean, maybe they'll come back later and say, no, they'll reach out to me. But there's so many times where it's a, it's a one-time thing and then it's over. And I think there's, there's a, just a relationship that's missing. You know, it's just like a, an open chance to connect and, and experience that art because it's, it tells a story. And I think if we're able to connect with collectors using you know, blockchain or whatever that is, that, that makes the art even more valuable. I agree. And physical art sometimes have that limitation. I, I remember having a conversation with one of the artists and he put augmented reality on, on his painting and he sold the pieces in Europe. And then all of a sudden, a few years later, somebody scanned one of them in, in Singapore, I believe. And he has no idea how this happened, right? So it's, uh, I agree. Uh, social media just keeps us connected in the sense that we not only see the purchase, the acquisition, and maybe talking to the, to the artist when, when that first reaction is, is translates into a purchase or an acquisition, but also as they show it to other people and as other people experience it, how they feel and they follow up with you. Uh, so it's, it's very interesting, a very valid use case for, for social media and something that it's hard to replicate. Yeah. And just as another side note that, I mean, the provenance of art on the blockchain is in itself own massive use case. And I can tokenize and, you know, put this record on the, on the blockchain of this physical art being authentic. And when someone buys it, I can transfer that ownership to them. There's no more scribbled notes on a gallery, you know, postcard that is like trying to hold up in, in court in a hundred years. There's a digital record and that is something else that is just a mind blowing caveat to this whole thing. You know, it's, I really think that, that art and crypto art is, is the true first use case for blockchain. I've seen a thousand ICOs, but I, I've rarely seen anything that actually proves itself the way that art's doing. I think that is going to, give people the confidence to open this up into, into other industries and things like that. I agree. There, there's a lot of opportunity to disrupt the traditional art scene and not hating on it, but it's just a different approach, right? The blockchain has all the necessary tools and the infrastructure for you to be able to disrupt this. If, if there's a need for, for that, right? And the, you know, the artist is benefiting exponentially more than in the traditional market. Now, if I was in the gallery, I'm, I'm expecting in my own head to give up between 40 and 60% for that sale. And once it cro crosses that threshold where they're making more than me, yeah. that's kind of you know, off-putting. It makes me not want to be in a gallery. Um, I know on Rare Art Labs and Super Rare, it's you know 80% plus for the artist. I mean, as an artist, I can tell you that makes a big difference.
you know, psychologically and, you know, physically. Those are game changers. Completely agree. Coley, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's, it was a pleasure meeting you in person. Having this conversation was just fantastic. I hope that everybody who's listening, not only from the buyer's perspective or the art enthusiasts, but the artists themselves got a lot of good information from you. Really appreciate you spending the time and curious to see what you do in the future and hoping to follow up with you soon. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Curating Crypto. If you liked this episode, please help us by sharing, rating, and subscribing. You can also stay in touch by following us on Twitter at Curating Crypto, where we will be sharing additional information and links related to the topics we've covered in these sessions. 